So today's guest is David Edmonds. David is based in London and he is a philosopher, an author, a co-host of Philosophy Bites, a podcast which has received nearly 50 million downloads. And he also worked at the BBC for around three decades as a radio show and podcast presenter and producer. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a second to hit that subscribe button below. The more subscribers we get, the more I keep speaking to amazing individuals like David. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and thank you for watching. David, thanks for joining me. Pleasure, nice to be here. So David, we were just speaking a minute ago, you said you went to to Dulwich College um, when you were at school. What What was it like going there? Oh, it was it was fine, you know. I've got reasonably fond memories of the place. It was very academic school, very middle class. Um, it was all boys' school, sons of accountants and lawyers and that sort of thing. Um, very successful academically. Uh, I was there from the age of nine. I went to a state Christian school, Church of England school. And then I went to Dulwich from the age of nine to the time I went to university. And you went to university at Oxford to study philosophy. What, in, what inspired you to use that subject? I went to Oxford to study PPE. Okay, my bad. Politics, philosophy and economics. And normally people give up one of the three subjects if you're doing PPE. So they end up doing politics and economics or philosophy and economics or politics and philosophy. And very few people did what I did, which was to keep all three of the subjects. So philosophy was obviously the one I knew least about. I hadn't uh, been interested in politics. I'd studied economics at A-level. So philosophy was the subject that I ended up specialising in and ended up loving, but was the topic I was least familiar with when I went to do PPE. But it, it seemed like the best fit of all the courses on offer. So I applied, got in, I went to... Worcester College, Oxford, which was uh, a very, very, very beautiful college with an 18th century um, outside. Some of the cottages inside a a 13th century. It was a sort of odd place. I mean, uh, Oxford generally was was much more public schooly than it is today, and Worcester College, which is now quite a diverse college and now does very well in the Norrington table, which is the table that ranks all the Oxford colleges. It was, we were actually, we were very low down, so it was full of, uh, well, they, I wouldn't say stupid, but it, was, it, was, it wasn't very successful academically compared to some of the other colleges and quite public schooly, incredible sort of male-female imbalance. There were at least four men to every one woman, I think, um, but, you know, I had a great time there, did very little for the first two years and then started working very hard in my final year. What was it about philosophy that you really enjoyed and you know, stood out compared to politics and economics? Well, politics, I kind of, even in, re- in retrospect, I wish I hadn't studied because I would have got to know what was happening in the political sphere in any case. We learnt about the powers of the presidency compared to powers of a prime minister for example that sort of stuff I would have absorbed 
Economics beyond a certain level, I couldn't see the point of. So it was great to learn about how inflation worked and interest rates and demand and supply curves. But at a certain level of abstraction, it seemed to me to be slightly divorced from the real economy. Philosophy I loved from the first moment. I loved the sort of analytic nature of it. And just all the issues, not all of them, but most of the issues that philosophy confronts just struck me as very, very important. And so, you know, I didn't know I was a philosopher, but I think I'd sort of always instinctively been interested in philosophical matters. And some people say, well, why would anybody waste their time studying philosophy? I kind of can't imagine how anybody doesn't think that these are the most important questions that we can possibly reflect on. Um, so, I just thought it was very important, very interesting. I wasn't particularly good at it, at least in the first couple of years. My worst marks were in philosophy. And that was why I ended up sticking to all three of the subjects. I would have gladly given up one of the other two and specialised in philosophy. But philosophy was the subject that I was least successful at in the beginning. You did a PhD at Open University. What was your research on for your, for your PhD? So there was another stage. I did PPE and then I did the BPhil, which was a two-year postgraduate course. And if you go back to the early 20th century, when people studied philosophy, um, the people who were very, very good at philosophy would get teaching jobs straight out of university. And then after a time, they introduced this the BPhil. I think it was introduced in the 50s. 1950s probably uh, and when you did the BPhil if you, had you, if you were qualified um, with a BPhil degree you could then get a teaching job and then after a time the BPhil was no longer good enough and you had to get an undergraduate degree at the BPhil and a PhD so I did the BPhil which was a kind of rigorous quite tough two-year philosophy degree and then I went off to work and it was only a few years later that I went back to philosophy and did my PhD. So my BPhil, where you do a set of papers and a dissertation or thesis, mini thesis, my BPhil dissertation focused on obligations to future people. Then when I did my PhD, I looked at um, the nature of racism and discrimination. And I was interested in trying to define what discrimination was. I was particularly interested in a puzzle, well, something that really puzzled me, which was sometimes discrimination seems rational. So, for example, if you're going to an airport and you're an airport security and looking at who they think might be a threat, well, it might make sense to think that the octogenarian woman poses less of a threat than the single man in his 20s who's going to a place where there has been a war, for example. Um, that seems perfectly rational at one level, but it also seems objectionable to profile people. So I was interested in the nature of profiling, to what extent profiling was acceptable, to what extent it was objectionable, and I tried to work that out. So, I mean, one of the interesting things about my BPhil and my PhD is that my BPhil supervisor, I had two supervisors, but one of my supervisors was a very famous philosopher who I've 
just writing a, I've written the biography about, which is coming out in April 2023, Derek Parfit. So he is the person who basically creates the philosophy of future people. Uh, so he was my Beefield supervisor, and the person who became his wife, Janet Radcliffe Richards, was my PhD supervisor. And she is famous for writing a book called The Skeptical Feminist, which annoyed everybody who read it. It was it was feminist, so it annoyed the kind of reactionaries and the chauvinists, but it was sceptical. So it took a sceptical view of feminists, so it annoyed lots of the feminist thinkers as well. So I, I, I am the only person, it's a strange claim to uniqueness, but the only person who was taught by, supervised by both of them. Oh, that's good. That's interesting. Um, yeah, interesting. You should bring up this this initial work you did on the obligation to future people. This is something that's very much come kind of is in vogue at the moment. What do you make of? I mean, have you read Will McCaskill's book, What We Owe the Future? What do you make of everything going on at the moment with that and effective altruism and, and everything? Yeah, well, I've been following it very carefully. I've just made a BBC program about effective altruism that uh, was broadcast just a couple of weeks ago, and which has in it um, the uh, until two weeks ago, the richest effective altruist, who is a guy called Sam, is he Freed Bankman? Bank Sam Bankman Freed. I always get his double barreled name the wrong way around. And I interviewed him a few weeks ago. So, for listeners who don't know who he is, um, for viewers who don't know who he is, he is um, a person who started up a crypto exchange only in 2019. And from nowhere, he became a billionaire. I think he became a billionaire quicker than any billionaire had ever become a billionaire. And he's now lost his money quicker than any person has ever lost their money. And when I interviewed him, he was worth many billions just a few weeks ago. And then he lost it. It, it, His wealth evaporated almost overnight. And um, I spoke to him and he, he was clearly still predicting that he was going to make billions and was going to be able to give away billions. Anyway, he's an effective altruist. Effective altruist is somebody who wants, uh, thinks we should give more money to charity and we should give it to charity in the most effective way we possibly can. Um, the link between that and future people is that Derek Parfit was really the philosopher who persuaded the effective altruist, this movement of people who want us to give more of our money away more effectively. He persuaded them that we shouldn't just focus on the current needy. We should think about future people. And it is controversial because there are effective altruists who claim that given that there are 8 billion people on the planet now, um, there will be, if we don't blow the whole planet up, trillions of people we hope in on the planet in future so if we're strict utilitarians and we're weighing up interests those future people are more important than the current generation so um, on a sort of strict utilitarian calculus perhaps we shouldn't care about what happens to current people perhaps all we should care about is making sure that future people have lives which are better than they would otherwise be were it not for actions we we should take. I mean, in practice, the interests of current people are aligned with, in most ways, with the interests of future people. So if we look after current people, on the whole, 
future people will be better off. But sometimes those interests come apart. I mean, the classic example is climate change. You know, we may have to make sacrifices now so that future generations benefit. And that's where current generations and future generations, their interests are are not necessarily aligned. So, uh, you know, there's lots of controversial aspects about effective altruism. I'm generally more sympathetic. It gets a lot of stick. And for life of me, I can't quite work out what's going on there. And a bit of me thinks that uh, the effective altruists make people feel guilty. <laughs> because on the whole, they're earnest young people, not earning a fortune. They're not like Sam Bankman-Fried. They're earning not made a lot of money. They're giving away a lot of money to charity in, with the best possible intentions. And they get a lot of stick for people from people. And I think much of it is undeserved some of it's some of it's deserved but much of it is undeserved and um it, it, it remains a mystery to me quite how hostile people feel towards defective altruists yeah i have noticed this on twitter there seems to be a lot of um i mean there is with lots of topics but yeah quite a few people opposed to the uh the ea kind of um halflings and then i think they've particularly seen this stuff with sam bankman fried and 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 uh I think I think you said that there's a lot of people who don't have particularly large amounts of money and, you know, they've given it away. I think people seem to have some issue with the connections they have to billionaires and technologists. And they think there's some kind of dodgy relationships or things going on there. I think that's a fair objection. I think people got suckered in to relationships with one or two dodgy people. And it's a very human thing to, to do. I mean, also, from the effective altruist point of view, there was potentially billions... To dispose of that's appealing but also the sort of glamour of, of a billionaire I think people got suckered into that and then people make some very good objections to which the effective altruists have answers they say for example the effective altruist is uh, uh, tends to be sort of neoliberal or focusing on individual solutions to world problems and that is just a plaster what you really need to do is have huge structural change. You need to change the nature of society. Instead of handing out money for mosquito nets or to help people who are malnourished, you'd want to solve the issues of global trade so that people don't aren't in desperate need in the first place. And those are perfectly legitimate criticisms. But the effective altruist does respond, and they do spend money now, on policy, on lobbying, to try and bring about structural change. Um, so, you know, it, it's partly a, f- a, f- a fair criticism, but, but I think one to which the effective altruist and the movement has have responded. So we talked a bit about your studies in philosophy. Of course, you're also a, you're a producer. Um, I think you've worked at the BBC for a long time. How did you first get into to broadcasting and producing shows and, and podcasts and this kind of thing? Well, firstly, I'm not anymore. I um, took redundancy from the BBC in 2021, so last year. Uh, what happened was that I, uh, having done my philosophy postgrad work, then took a job in a strange organisation called Oxford Analytica, which was 
an organisation that offered a daily newspaper to the private sector analysing global news. And yeah, it was a strange place, but it was a great way into journalism. And I applied for various jobs. I worked very briefly for The Economist, the Economist Intelligence Unit, a part of the Economist family for a few months. But then I applied for a job as a writer in the BBC World Service. And I was a scriptwriter for short packages that then were then translated into different languages. At the time, the BBC World Service was operating in 43 languages, I think. So I would write a script and they would be made available to all the language services and you would compare how you did with other producers or other writers. So sometimes they wouldn't be translated at all. The really popular ones, which tended to be about Princess Di in those days, they would be translated by 30 languages. And as well as doing scripts for the language services, it was a department, fortunately, that also did feature programs. So very quickly I got into making feature programs and for the next many years, I was a producer. Um, I took a year off to, get, uh, to work on a fellowship in, at the University of Chicago, a Harkness Fellowship, and I later had a fellowship at the University of Michigan. Um, and in about 2001, 2002, I went part-time. So from that moment on, I was three days a week at the BBC and then two days doing academic work and doing podcasts and writing about philosophy. So what interested you um, about this this world? Why did you not want to be, a, let's say, a full-time academic philosopher? Why did you, why did you want to do the shows and, and work in this kind of space? Well, I always had a tension in my mind between being a specialist and being a dilettante. And I find being a specialist really fun um, because I want to know more about particular subjects than anybody else and want to know everything about certain subjects. But I'm also curious about many, many topics. And being a dilettante, which journalism facilitated enabled me to enter lots and lots of different worlds so from every day in the first few years I might be writing about the, well, the Bosnian war or Sierra Leone or Rwanda or then the Gulf War um, and then I went into features and I did a lot of traveling I, I, I traveled to I counted them all. I travelled to 64 countries with the BBC, wow. making programmes in 64 different countries. Saw a lot of the world, made programmes about many, many interesting topics. Um, so I like that because I was so interested in so many different things. Um, but doing that full time would have felt to me unsatisfactory because every time I focused on a topic, I would have maybe a month three weeks, if, if, big topics, maybe five weeks, six weeks. Uh, and then you'd move on to the next topic. And there's so only so much you can learn in five or six weeks. And, you know, it was annoying then to have to, in some ways to have to move on to another topic because you kind of got to grips with one subject and then you were having to start again with the next one. So I've spent my life doing half being a, a specialist and half just flitting from subject to subject so most of the work of yours i've seen you know the bbc and, and so on is 
seems kind of philosophically seemed, but has a lot of it not been what you may describe as you know, no, so look, especially in the early years I, I, I've always tried to make philosophy programs early on I did a series called Western Philosophers in a Nutshell where I interviewed six famous philosophers Bernard Williams about Nietzsche Anora O'Neill about Kant I think I think they had David Pears on Hume, a guy called Miles Berniot and Aristotle. Um, they were very short interviews, cut down to fifteen minutes, and in a way that was an, the origin to philosophy bites because I wanted to, which we may get onto. It's a podcast because um, I um, I tried to do more of that for the BBC, and they didn't want another series, and so I thought, well. Nowadays, once we'd entered a digital age, I could do that myself. I didn't have to rely on the BBC. So I did make some philosophy programmes. Again, in the early days, I made a series on philosophical paradoxes, which I loved with a friend. We made a programme about whether God can cook a breakfast so big he or she can't eat it. And um, Thesis is Ship, a puzzle about identity. And there was one about... And one of the Zeno paradoxes about Achilles and the tortoise. The tortoise can never be overtaken by Achilles because it starts ahead of Achilles. And by the time Achilles has reached where the tortoise is, where the tortoise was, the tortoise has moved on a bit. Um, so we did uh, five or six paradoxes. And then later I did quite a lot of philosophy. But in between, um, most of my travel was not philosophy-based. Um, all sorts of programmes we did a program about the Gaza Marathon, um, which a marathon that runs the, the whole length of the Gaza Strip. And, um, well, I did something about carbon credits and I did various investigations as well. Um, so, I, 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 you know, I did a fair amount of philosophy, but most of it was not philosophically based. What's the most challenging aspect um, of the kind of work you've done? Some of the things you've, you've talked about, what's, what's difficult? Gosh, I don't know. I I worked on the Today programme for six months, which I, I hated almost every minute of that. Is it the, the Today Show on BBC? The, the, the that, Radio 4 Today Show. Okay, sure. And, and, yeah. and um, uh, I really, I found that incredibly stressful. And I mean, I think I was all right at it. I don't think I was great at it. I was all right. I was promoted quite quickly to be a, a an editor you see there were day editors and night editors not the editor of the whole program I don't think I was very good at it uh, and I found it very difficult my first editing shift was August the 31st 1997 do you know what happened on that day I don't very very August faint. first nineteen August the 31st 1997 no I'm sorry, I don't know <laughs> Uh, Princess Di died. Okay. And so I was thrown into the deep end. Uh, anyway, I, I I really didn't enjoy those six months because I didn't enjoy the, the the deadlines that you have. Those the constant stress. So most of my BBC career, I've had deadlines, but they're monthly rather than daily. So I, I, uh, I do these long programs so you get more time. But even so, in a way, it's relentless. You know, the relentless nature of 
there's a deadline approaching all the time. There's always a deadline. And it's not something you postpone. There, there's, a, there, there, there's a schedule. You've got to make that program. You've got to hit that deadline. You can't be late for it. Um, so, I mean, I was okay with those. But when I look back at it now, I don't have them having left the BBC. Well, that does wear you down eventually. So you mentioned Philosophy Bites a minute ago. I wanted to ask you about that. This is a show you run with um, with, with Nigel Warburton. I think I read online it's had 44 million downloads, maybe more since then. 45, I think now. 45, brilliant. Yeah, um, Yeah, it's a brilliant show. First of all, I mean, what was the story of how that kind of came to be? How did that show appear? Well, I didn't really know Nigel. What happened was I wrote a book with my then co-author called John Eidenauer, uh, and the book was on... Russo and Hume. It was called Russo's Dog. And I came across an article Nigel had written about a an artist who'd painted both Russo and Hume. And it was an interesting article. So I got in touch with him. And he'd been sort of vaguely thinking about writing a book, I think, about Russo and Hume. And he had a few notes which he sent me. And so we got in contact. And then what happened was that he invited me to a talk, an interview he did with somebody who's become a friend of mine as well, but was a close friend of his called Stuart Franklin, who's a magnum photographer. Out in the hall where we are now, I will show you a, a, a couple of photos that Stuart took, but he's most famous for taking the, the, the photo of Tank Man in the Tiananmen Square, the guy who's standing by the tank. And he was doing an interview with, with Stuart, and I thought, oh, He's good at this, you know. He knows exactly the right question to ask at exactly the right moment. And he listens, which is a difficult skill if you're interviewing somebody. He listens to what they say and he responds. And then I had a friend called Hugh. And Hugh had a uh, a podcast called Story Noir. He'd left the BBC. I'd knew him from the BBC. And I went to see Hugh and... Basically, he was recording out-of-copyright children's stories, just re-recording them, adapting them a bit. And at the time, this was 2007, I remember he had 40,000 downloads a month. And I thought, wow, 40,000. I mean, he now gets a million a month. So I approached Nigel and said, why don't we try a philosophy podcast? And... Nigel is much more technically savvy than me. So I do all the editing and Nigel does the stuff that I, well, I probably could learn, but I, <laughs> Nigel puts it on the website and he does the website and he's very good at that. And he's, he's an early adopter of technology and I'm a very late adopter, even though I'm the one who works in the media business and he's the one. So between us, and he's done most of the, interviews and I in the, in the old days we now often just do them on our own in the old, old days I was always there recording them um, and then I do the editing and anyway that's how it came about and we were way ahead of anybody else so the first podcast was posted in, I think 2007 there's now many many po- podcasts but we had a, 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 a we had a first mover advantage definitely and yeah, we've had a huge number of, pod- of, of, of downloads. But I always knew from my days when I presented this series called 
Western philosophies in a nutshell, which I told you about, I always knew that there was a big demand out there because that series, 100 people, this was back in 2000, uh, 1993, 100 people wrote in from around the world, took the trouble of writing in those, you know, not, not emails, emails didn't really exist, put a stamp on there, en- uh, on the envelope, wrote in from Nigeria and, and you, know, uh, you know, India, saying how much they'd enjoyed the programmes. I always knew there was a demand out there. And philosophy is niche, but it's globally niche. So people in Britain are interested in philosophy, people in America are interested in philosophy, people in Canada, and people all around the world in Hong Kong, they're interested in philosophy. So I knew that a podcast, which is a global product, you know, a podcast that goes across the world, I knew that there would be an audience. We were surprised quite how quickly we established an audience and quite how popular it's been. But the fact that we would find an audience didn't come as a surprise. So in the show, you speak to, to like a single guest for maybe 15 to 20 minutes on a, on a single concept um, or idea. I mean, what, yeah, what was, the, what was the idea for choosing that format? And I mean, what, what did you actually set out to do when you made the show? What were you trying to achieve with Philosophy Bites? Well, again, the BBC series had been the same. It had been short. We don't interview them for 15 minutes. We interview them for much longer. Uh, and they're edited. So they're... they're, they're heavily edited so how much longer is it roughly? well do you got to uh, an hour no 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 not that much but but um uh they can easily be 35 minutes on tape sometimes longer and we tend to lose about 50 percent i guess uh i mean most people you can remove 40 percent of what most people say without any loss of content <laughs> you, you should try it for 40 percent of this of, of what I say is probably completely superfluous. Uh, and so we wanted something quick. We wanted something easy. We wanted something cheap. Um, we didn't want to commit too much time to it. So if you do a BBC heavily featured documentary and you throw in sound effects, you throw in music, you throw in lots of voices, you cut between these different voices. That sounds great, but that's a big job. And this was a hobby for us. You know, people very kindly now sort of subsidize us and, and, and send in donations. We have subscribers and we've had the occasional sponsor, but it, it, needed, to be, it needed to be quick, easy and cheap. What's the process? I'm intrigued. So from the moment, um, you know, how does it start? You come up with an idea. Well, how does it go from there to, you know, the, the episode being uploaded by, uh, by Nigel to the website? What's the full kind of process? Well, it's not complicated. It's very similar to the process that you've gone through. So we identify who we want to interview. We get approached a lot now, almost daily by a publisher. And so we have to say no, because we've now, in those first two years, it was crazy. We did one interview a week, which was a lot, given that we had many other commitments. Then we went down to one every two weeks. And now there are hundreds and hundreds of interviews, and we've gone down to one a month. Maybe we'll change the pace again. I guess partly because we feel that if you're new to Philosophy Bites, well, you've got a lot of philosophy to work your way through. There's no shortage. We've, we haven't covered every base, but we've covered a lot of bases now. Uh, there's still definitely gaps that we need to cover, but and, and, and we could go on forever. There will always be gaps. Um, but if you're interested in philosophy and you haven't come across Philosophy Bites, 
you can go to the website and you can get fantastic philosophy education by listening to the the backlist. It will take you a very long time to go through the whole backlist. And so we felt we don't need to do one a week anymore. There's enough philosophy that we've covered now to satisfy most people. But we identify who we want to interview. We approach them. Almost everybody says, yes, they're happy to do it. We normally go and see them. We used to go together. Now, increasingly, uh, one of us will go. Uh, normally, Nigel, since the pandemic, you know, the pandemic changed everything. Uh, then uh, if Nigel's done the interview, he'll send me the file. If, and, and Unless I've been there, when I'll, of course I'll have it. Uh, then I edit it. Um, if uh, I will write a cue, and Nigel normally checks the cue. I'll then mix it with the music, send it off to Nigel, who then posts it. That's the process, and then he puts it on the website. You described philosophy a minute ago. I think as a kind of being a kind of filling a kind of a global niche. What's the kind of breakdown? Do you know in in terms of the listeners of your show? How many people? What kind of percentage do you think are kind of you know academic philosophers and people who are very interested in the subject? People who are new to it. Do you know much about the? We we have less strong. We only have anecdotal data about that. We have very clear data about the geographic spread. That's easy. So we know that. I think about. I might get this wrong, but I think about twenty five percent is. British, about 45% is American, and, and then the rest of it is spread from different parts of the world. Um, but Britain and America are two big um, markets. Um, anecdotally, we have everybody from people, very distinguished um, professors. I think Nick Bostrom used to listen at double speed. Uh, to people who've never studied philosophy and just have a very amateur interest in it. So we have the full range. Age-wise, again, um, from students to OAPs, we've had people write to us who've listened on military battlegrounds. Uh, we, we, you know, we've people from every profession. So we do get feedback and. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I guess you might expect that there's a bias towards those sort of more rather than less, you know, educated. I suspect most of our audience have got a degree, not all of them by any means. Um, but, but, yeah, other than that, it's probably captures you know a pretty representative demographic of 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 uh, Britain and, and 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 the US at least um but we, but we don't have data that's all anecdotal we we've never done surveys or anything like that but people write to us so we have we have some idea Nick Bostrom listening at a kind of highly productive double speed makes sense. I'm not surprised to hear that. That sounds just like him. He listens to all his podcasts at double speed. Oh, really? um, so kind of moving on slightly. So you've also you know written a number of books. Um, actually just finished listening to your audio book um, about the trolley problem and uh, the dilemmas that that kind of that thought experiment um, provides. 
what's the process like writing a book compared to you know, uh, filming a podcast or, or doing a show? Do you do you do you prefer it? Do you find what ways it's more challenging? Are there any interesting differences or similarities? Well, it's it's obviously a, a much longer, more intense process writing a book. Uh, I I've written. Um, I guess three or four types of books. So I've co-written three books with John Eidenow, of which the best known was the very first one we did, which was Wittgenstein's Poker, about a 10-minute row between Wittgenstein and Karl Popper. Um, I've written various books on my own. Well, I've written no, I've more genres than that, actually, because I've, I've written a children's novel um, with um, a friend called Hugh Fraser. Um, I've just written a biography, which I mentioned. Uh, and then I've done, I've edited lots of books. So Nigel and I have edited at least four books together, I think. And those are edited collections of interviews from Philosophy Bites. And then I've edited lots of books for my Uhero Centre, where I'm based a day a week. Uhero Centre for Practical Ethics in Oxford, where I've edited another four books but those books uh, have contributions from other philosophers so my job has just been to collate them and edit them and and so on um so yeah obviously the the, the job that is most difficult is writing those books on on my own so i've just written a book called um before the Parfit biography a, a book called the murder professor slick which was a big book about the Vienna Circle, which is a group of philosophers from the 1920s and 1930s in Vienna, who for a period were the most fashionable movement in philosophy. And that was a very long, protracted and difficult process, partly because there were so many figures involved, some well-known figures like Carnap and Gödel, and with Wittgenstein and Popper on the outskirts of the Vienna Circle, and some lesser-known figures as well so lots of figures to get to grips with and very very difficult philosophy as well so that was that was really hard you mentioned would you kill the fat man which is a a book a whole book about a single thought experiment which is a famous trolley thought experiment which involves well really the difference between these two um, thought experiments the first one is you imagine a a runaway train it's going to kill five people who are stuck to the track you can press a lever and turn the runaway train down a spur where unfortunately one person is stuck to the track what should you do well it turns out most people think you should turn the train save the five lives even at the cost of the poor person on the spur who's going to die and then you compare that with another trolley thought experiment where the train again is out of control, it's going to kill five people who are stuck to the track. This time, you can save them, but the only way of doing it is you're standing on a footbridge next to a very large man. You can push that person over the footbridge. He's a stranger, you don't know who he is. He'll land on the track, and his sheer bulk will stop the train from killing the five people. question is, should you do that? Interestingly, although in both cases... You're taking one life to save five. Most people think you shouldn't do that. And the question is, well, what's the difference? 
is there, is there a philosophical difference between the two? Is there a psychological difference between the two? So the book was just about that thought experiment, but it was much more contained. And the writing process felt more straightforward compared to the more recent book on the Vienna Circle. I mean, that, that thought experiment, if not in all of philosophy, I guess, at least in moral philosophy, is the most maybe fa- famous thought experiment. Why is that? Is it that it just kind of focuses on the most fundamental issue in in ethics? Why is it the the thought experiment? Well, it, it does seem to. Some people dispute this, but it seems on the face of it to draw out a tension between utilitarianism, the philosophy that you should maximise well-being or happiness, that all that matters is that it's better to save five lives rather than one and deontology um, which is the philosophy that there are some things that you shouldn't do whatever the consequences or at least the consequences are not all that matter Uh, you shouldn't torture somebody um, even if that might save some lives because torture is wrong so on the face of it it seems to be a stark uh, represent the stark distinction between those different types of philosophy so it's kind of useful in that sense but also obviously there's a sort of there's a narrative element I think it's um, you know the, the people can imagine it very easily um, people have very strong views about it which is interesting um, you know it, from, from an eight-year-old to an 80-year-old male, female, British, Singaporean, everybody has strong views about it. Uh, and then the other thing I think that's appealing about it is that there's a there's this puzzle. So lots of thought experiments, um, you know, everybody agrees about them. And the question is, well, why, what are they agreeing to? Whereas this thought experiment, most people do agree, but they can't work out. Um, it's a real puzzle about what it is that, um, why it is that we think one is right and one is wrong. Um, and I think, well, for me, that was appealing. You know, I'm a chess player, I like puzzles. Uh, and so trying to solve that, it's a bit like a whodunit, you know. So I think that is an element to why it's been so successful as a philosophical thought experiment. And the other, th- thing I guess one should say about it is that it started off in philosophy but then it became interesting to all sorts of other people neuroscientists who would look at people's brains and MRI scans when when people were making these decisions and psychologists became interested in it so a whole bunch of other disciplines suddenly became interested in this thought experiment so it moved beyond the world of philosophy and word travelled that there was this interesting philosophical thought experiment that might be useful to analyse from a bunch of different perspectives. You just mentioned chess. I was going to ask, I haven't read it yet, but I see you've written a book about Bobby Fischer. So are you an avid chess player or fan? I'm intrigued about that. Yeah, I'm an avid chess uh, fan. I'm no longer an active player. So when I was young, from a very young age, from the age of five or six, I played chess and I gave up when I went just before I went to university I I basically stopped playing competitive chess but I played a lot of competitive chess when I was a kid played a lot at school 
um, you know, I was playing when I was 13 or 14, I was playing 120, 130 competitive games a year, which is a lot because they take a lot of time. So I would play weekend tournaments. Um, I mean, fortunately for me, I was, you know, I was a decent player, um, but I have some friends who were much better. And it was clear from a young age that I wasn't as good as some of these other people. But I was very, you know, looking back on it, I was very pleased I wasn't as good as some of, a couple of my friends um, who've gone on to be professional chess players. And it's a very tough life to be a professional chess player because there's not a lot of money in chess. You know, you, you have to be really, to make a good living out of chess, you've got to be in the top 20, 25, 30 in the world. Um, so I'm very glad it was clear from a very young age that I was nowhere near anywhere like as, as good as that. Uh, 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 a year below me was Nigel Short, and he was way better than me when he was eight and I was nine. Um, but I still follow it very carefully. I still make programmes about chess um, for the BBC. I've just made one recently about a cheating scandal that has hit the world of chess. And yeah, I wrote this book with John Eidenauer called Bobby Fischer Goes to War, which is about the most famous chess match in the history of chess, which was between Bobby Fischer and Boris Spassky. And it was famous because Fischer was such a problematic character. Nobody knew whether the match was going to go ahead. The Soviets had dominated the world of chess since the beginning of the Cold War. They used chess as a propaganda tool to demonstrate the superiority of communism over capitalism. Uh, Fischer saw himself as taking a swipe at those commies. Um, and the whole thing descended into a circus. So there was uh, lots of things going on beyond the world of chess. It was on the front page of newspapers across the world because of Bobby Fischer. And, you know, I see myself as a part of that Fischer generation. So I was born in 60, 1964. The match took place in 1972. There was an explosion of interest in chess, particularly in Britain. So Britain had a, my generation of junior players. There were a lot of my generation who were very, very good players. British junior chess was very, very strong. Off the back of that Fischer-Spassky match, a lot of interest in chess. So I think it'd be fair to describe you as a public, bit of a public philosopher. Why do you think public philosophy is important that people, you know, who don't necessarily work in philosophy, think about it, listen to, you know, maybe philosophy bites and things like this and, and, and think about these issues? Why is it, why is it important? Well, I wouldn't make grand claims for the value of public philosophy. Uh, I love philosophy. I love, in my books, I love storytelling so I quite like transmitting philosophy to a wider readership often through some storytelling aspects is it important well you can make claims for I mean I think the questions are intrinsically important do they make people happier I don't think necessarily they do I think critical thinking which philosophy can bring to the table. I think critical thinking is very important in every single domain, um, from politics to science. So to the extent that philosophy can help critical thinking, it's of value. But 
you know, if one is talking about lots of philosophical questions, they have very little practical application. Some of them do. I mean, I'm attached to this center that focuses on applied ethics, which looks at artificial intelligence. Or, I mean, in the old days, it would be capital punishment or euthanasia. Now it's bioethics. It could be embryo research, questions to do with that. Or, you know, the pandemic has raised lots of interesting philosophical questions. So there are, there's a part of philosophy that is very applied um, and has a, a, obviously a practical application, but lots of aspects of philosophy don't. The ne- what is truth? The questions about consciousness, do they have practical applications? Possibly, but not so conspicuously and obviously. But nonetheless, I think they're very, very interesting, fascinating, and they're important in- intrinsically. I don't necessarily think you have to define the value of philosophy in terms of something else. They, they're just essentially interesting issues, interesting questions. And so that's how I, I would justify focusing on them. Can you give any examples of how your engagement with philosophy, the fact that you're thinking about it often and working in it, you know, what effect that's had on your personal life? Um, well, I'm vegetarian. I don't suppose I'd be vegetarian had I not read Peter Singer when I was an undergraduate. Peter Singer was the founder of the animal rights movement. Well, it wasn't animal rights so much because he doesn't believe in rights. He's a utilitarian. But if we can use that catch-all phrase, animal rights movement, he he was more responsible for that than anybody else. And he, he was and still is a well-known philosopher. I mean, in those days, it was impossible and uh, not really part of the possibility of options to be a vegan. Actually, very few people were vegans. So you went from being a meat eater to being a vegetarian. Now we've been outflanked. Um, I haven't yet moved to being a vegan, but I, I, you know, I've got a family of, and, and they're not vegetarian. And were I on my own, I think I would now move to being a vegan. But uh, I'm a vegetarian because of uh, because of philosophy. So that's one example of how philosophy has affected my life. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example. What advice would you give to someone who maybe wants to get into the kind of work you did at the at the BBC, it's journalism and broadcasting? Well, it's very difficult to get in. The whole media landscape has been transformed since I started at the BBC. So there were very few outlets. Now there's just a a bunch of people doing media type work, podcasts, a whole bunch of different media organisations. You know, there's a new one called Tortoise where they have their own podcast. Uh, if you're interested in broadcast media, then all these newspapers, The Guardian, The Times, they've got podcast radio aspects to them. So if you're interested in broadcasting, there's much more going on than there used to be. And of course, it's much easier. The, 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 the entry point is much easier in some ways. Um, I mean, just take a, a, a very kind of practical 
a technical point. When I started, um, you had to cut tape. You literally had to cut tape with a razor blade and you'd stick bits together. And it was like that for 10 years. Now you can do what you're doing. Anybody can set up a podcast or a, you know, a video or audio podcast. Um, the barriers to entry are, are virtually nil. Uh, anybody can do it. So you can get up to speed technically much more quickly than you could in the old days. My advice for getting into a, a very sort of nice job in an in establishment media outlet would be to get your foot in the door, I think, which often involves doing freelance work to start with and just making your presence felt um, you probably have to be something which I'm not. I never had to be, but I think most people have to be. They have to be pushy. You know, that's a really an annoying aspect of the industry. You've got to approach people. On the idea, you know, if you're a journalist, you've got to learn to talk to people and approach people. So if you can't do that, then perhaps you're in the wrong industry. But you've got to you've got to be pushy and ring people up and go and see them and uh, you know ask for work, uh, which is not you know I, I don't find it enjoyable. Um, but but uh, the main thing is to get your foot in the door because then if people can see you'll do the you can do the job then more work will come your way. Where's the best way that people can kind of keep up with the with the content you put out and and follow you online? With Nigel, I'll do Philosophy Bites, which we've talked about. So you just go to the Philosophy Bites website. I have another podcast called Philosophy Twenty Four Seven, where I've got about forty interviews, which or more, which just has interviews. On moral and political, so that it has a very narrow focus um, on practical issues, so that they can just go to the website there. And well, I have my own website, but which has, I think, lists of the books and so on. Thanks a lot, David. Brilliant to speak, and uh, yeah, I just look forward to seeing the rest of the content you put out over the next few years. Thanks, I enjoyed it. Thank you for your good questions. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you enjoy the human podcast, please consider subscribing. I hope to see you soon.